This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Elena Brower. Elena is a yoga instructor, designer, and artist based in New York City. Devoted to cultivating meditation as our most healing habit, she's created potent online coursework and produced On Meditation, a film featuring personal portraits of renowned meditators. She started Teach.Yoga, a virtual home for yoga teachers worldwide, and has contributed to the Huffington Post, Mind Body Green, and Yoga Journal. With Sounds True, Elena Brower has created several audio programs, including a program called Grounded and Free and The Return Home. And she's also co-author with Erica Jago of an underground best-selling book called Art of Attention, a yoga workbook that has been translated into six languages. Elena has also written a new book scheduled for release in September of this year, called Practice You, a Journal, where she invites us to gather our own wisdom through writing, self-inquiry, and reflection. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Elaine and I spoke about her process of identifying her own addiction to marijuana and cigarette smoking, and the energy, clarity, and mental stability she discovered from dropping this addiction and committing to her own inner dignity. She also shared a writing prompt from her new book, Practice You, in which Elena writes to herself as a child at various ages in order to comfort that child in her journey. Elena also talked about how when learning, it's possible to be utterly present and a student to the end. She talked about a feminine approach to spiritual discipline, what it means to be soft yet firm, and Elena led us in a guided meditation for releasing our love into the world. Here's my conversation with Elena Brower. Elena, you've written a new field notebook a journal, workbook, art book called Practice You. And I think one of the invitations in Practice You is for people to become more and more honest with themselves about right where they're at. And I wanted to start first by talking about this process of self-confrontation and self-honesty. I know it's just in the last few years that you've become public with a recovery from addiction process and that that involved, it seemed at least to me from the outside, with a certain confrontation, a certain self-honesty. And I wonder if you can share some about that 
and how you think it might have related to the creation of Practice You. Hmm. Well, when I first started to uh, get clean and sober, my main addiction was marijuana and tobacco, and often together. I didn't go public about it for quite some time. I kept it to myself for as long as I needed to in order to feel like there was no going back. And when I finally became more vocal about it, it was really to, in the service of helping friends and colleagues who I know were going through and some are still going through the very same thing that I was, where they're you know, kind of lying to themselves every day. Today's the last day. Tomorrow's the last day. Today's the last day. Tomorrow's the last day. And constantly disappointing themselves and constantly degrading that feeling of um, authority that they might have over themselves, which lends to their credibility as a teacher. And so I was really there becoming vocal about it in service to the friends that I knew were suffering in the same way that I had been. Practice You came about um, two years after I, almost two years after I got clean. And it was partially in response to my recovery. It was partially in response to the death of my mom that had happened just a few years prior to this sort of idea germinating. And it was partially a response to the fact that I've spent my entire life creating notebooks of what I'm gathering and learning. And I constantly go back to those notebooks. If I never took another note in my life, I would be perfectly sorted out from this moment, 46, until the day that I die. I would be perfect. I don't need another thing to come into the, into the field of my awareness. But the fact that I constantly go back to my own notes and find gems there that I had no idea about at the time of writing them, they morph into other things, evolve into other things based on my own evolution. That was what kind of lit me up about the possibility of doing a journal because that's where people get a chance to leave their mark for themselves, almost like they're leaving a trail for themselves. So when they go back to it in a week, in a month, in a year, in a decade, there will be wisdom there waiting for them. You know, Elena, when you when you talk about your addiction, having been smoking marijuana and cigarettes, I'm sure a lot of people might say, oh, come on. You know, it's not like Elena found herself, you know, on the bathroom floor someplace or in a prison cell. It's a little heavy to call that really an addiction. Mm. How did you become clear, oh, I have an addiction that I need to resolve? Mm. It was just day after day of you know, saying to myself, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stop. This is it. This is the last day. And then I would wake up the next day and I would do it again. And I kept looking at myself in the mirror, stoned or not stoned, and just saying, who are you? Why do you keep doing this to yourself? It's so torturous. You know, and then of course the ramifications when I'm not stoned, I'm much more volatile. I'm much more angry. I'm much more um, temperamental. My son needed me much more sane and steady than I was able to be with all of that coursing through my poor liver. And so I, after seeing this play out for at least a year, almost daily of, you know, in the morning after dropping all the, the, the boys off of going up to the roof and getting stoned again, 
I thought, you know what? This is an addiction. This is a problem. I can't stop. And yes, I'm completely comfortable. And yes, I'm not on the street. I'm not, you know, destitute, not sick in a hospital, but I can see how slippery the slope is. And I can see how that one time a day would have easily become two times a day were it not for the fact that I had a job that required me to be outward facing, going and teaching, were it not for the fact that I had a child whom, who deserves my, my care and my love as best possible. Those things were, were keeping me from going down the very deepest end. Mm-hmm. Now, for some people, their addictions may be subtle. It may mm. be, you know, an addiction to eating in a different way. You know, each day the person mm. says, I'm going to eat more healthy food. Oh, and then, you know, the day passes and it doesn't really happen. Or other kinds of addictions that are kind of accepted by our culture. I'm wondering how you think the act of journaling and working with self-confrontation can help people become honest enough to see what their addictive patterns might be, and then most importantly, make a change. Well, throughout Practice You, at the end of each chapter, I have a page where I have, um, I have the reader go ahead and write a letter to themselves at a certain age. And when I, I started doing it myself, of course, and when I started writing the letters to myself at certain ages, I started to see how very addicted I was <laughs> from 15 all the way through my 20s into my 30s. And I started to see how, how insidious and actually divisive it was because I was really in, in the public eye and in my heart of my heart. I was really this one person. I cared so deeply about my work, about my teaching, about my students, you know, the, the folks who would come to see me, I, I, my teachers. But yet, in private, I was still degrading my own integrity time and time and time again. And I was able to see that with the advent of just writing letters to myself, just reaching out to myself or really reaching back into the past in this case to take care of myself, welcome myself back in. And there was something very profound about it when I tried it myself. And so I thought, you know, this is actually, this is the right way to go at the end of each chapter. And the remainders of the chapter, all these very incredible, provocative, um, I think potent prompts to get people to start to think about what they have the capacity to do. Um, one that stands out in my mind that I always talk about is some part of me knows how to heal this. There's another page that says, this is how I practice inner dignity. You know, so there, there are these prompts that if I was in the middle of the throes of an addiction, even if it was as mild as something like marijuana, that would be very difficult for me to write. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. This is how I practice inner dignity. That word carries such a communication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I devoted a two-page spread to it. This is how I practice inner dignity, and then just across, inner dignity feels like this. And that was in Chapter 4, which is relegated to the heart. This is how I give myself love. Um, this is how my heartbreaks have, or how have my heartbreaks helped me find my tribe? 
Mm. Yeah. Now, tell me a little bit more about the letter writing exercise, and maybe you could give an example of Certainly. how the letter writing in your own life was illuminating for you. So I'll read you the, the prompt for the letter in chapter three. Consider a moment when you felt challenged, afraid, or sad at the age of nine. See yourself hugging that child you were. Now, from your perspective today, write a song, a poem, a letter, or a story that gives that child insight into the ways in which you will so soon learn to know yourself, believe in yourself, and to bestow dignity upon yourself by trusting yourself. And I wrote, this was the beginning of the letter, and it's a little sad. I, um, I think I can hold it together. You, I wrote, you have no idea how blessed you'll feel when you one day far into the future are sitting at a book expo in New York City at the Javits Center, signing your book while your gorgeous 10-year-old son is at a beautiful school and his beautiful dad and stepmama heal the world and your man, your partner in life is a gem at work making beauty while he supports you emotionally, loves you entirely, truly worships you and loves everything you are. So anytime you feel low or off or out of sorts or sad or afraid, know that your life will be utterly blessed Love yourself and also love your mom. She'll die when you're 45. Mm. You know, it's like, what else is there? <laughs> what else is there but to reach back and, and hold that person's hand? You know? Sorry. Mm. Mm. It's just such a beautiful act for yourself to take care of yourself in that way. I'm curious to have a better understanding of how, when you wrote these letters backward in time yes. to your former self, <laughs> how it helped you see the pains that you had at those ages and create healing in your current life, at your current age. Well, you know, we know this scientifically. We all carry so much of our childhood pain into the situations in which we find ourselves today. And so in that example, when I when I look back at myself at nine and I, <laughs> I look down and I see the little jean culottes that I was wearing and my little sandals and my little t-shirt I can remember so distinctly and feel the pain of, of the things that I was going through at the time, the rejection, the the remorse uh, related to my family, you know, things that were real, traumatic. Um, and then also the, the feelings of acceptance and the friends that I had. And I, I, I can feel that person when I start to write to that person. And I can feel the, the sadness that lived in her. And I can feel the elation that lived in her. And I can, I can feel the little tiny skinny legs and the glasses on the face and the pigtails and the hair and, and, just talking to her and comforting her and telling her that it is all, it's all going to work out so beautifully. It truly, Tammy, feels like there's no time. It feels like there is no time. You can travel through time. You can handle that person. You can heal that person and you can help that person bring forth into right this moment, uh, more, more solace and more confidence. At least that was my experience. Now, Elena, later this year, Sounds True is going to be hosting a spirituality and psychotherapy online free summit. And we're going to be looking at 
how practices like yoga and meditation, when combined with psychological approaches, can be complemented, enhanced, and amplified, and take us someplace where we very much need to go as a culture. And I wanted to talk to you about that because it seems like you are not staying within the boundaries, if you will, of strictly teaching yoga and meditation, but that you've brought into your own life's unfoldment information from the field of coaching and other disciplines, and you're really seeing how yoga and meditation can be complemented by these other approaches. And I'm curious what you think about that. Well, it's true that the practices of yoga and meditation alone can get us only so far. That has been my experience. Um, now that I'm studying more uh, assiduously with Yogarupa Rod Stryker, I have a better idea of what is possible in terms of creating of the yoga, meditation, pranayama practice, a steady mind and a stable self. I didn't have that prior to um, really working with him and, and starting to unveil what what he works on regarding the tantra, regarding the breath work that really does serve to positively stabilize our, our mental state as well as our physical. Um, I didn't have that prior to working with him. And so I found that through coaching. I found that through self-observation, fourth way work. I found that through, um, you know, psychotherapy. I found that through group work. And so I feel, you know, you're obviously right on track that this is something that's so important because I think yoga and meditation are, are phenomenal. They were my, my doorway to all of this work, but without the other work, uh, I don't know that we can really have a full picture of what's possible. And I don't know that we could actually make it to, uh, an extremely stable, steady, calm resilience, um, that, that I have found with all of these other influences. Mm -hmm. What are you learning with Rod Stryker that's proving to be so meaningful for you? It's precisely what I talked about. Um, his, first of all, his presence and his studentship are two of the main things that I'm learning. Just how to be utterly present and remain the student until the end. Um, but when he teaches, he's teaching from a Sri Vidya lineage. He's teaching for, like I said, mental stability. You know, there's, there's, there's so much value in finding breath practices that actually do calm all the vrittis and attenuate the vasanas, all the, all the misunderstandings. How can I attenuate those using the practice of my breathing every morning? so that none of them can start to infect and invade the rest of my day and all the different ways in which I'm perceiving the world. Mm -hmm. And the, the work that he does toward that end is what um, is keeping me very close to both him and, both him and his teacher, um, Pandachi Rajmani Tiganayat. Um, they, they do tremendous work, and it's the simplest work. It's the most ancient um, in a way, basic and in a way, very complex, but but really more basic than complex um, practices 
Mm-hmm. This is the stuff that was written about. It's it's not that um, difficult to learn. It just requires a lot of practice, and the results are palpable. He always says, you know, what is the actual aim of yoga? It's really to quiet all these twists and turns and churnings in your mind and attenuate all the misunderstandings that you have about yourself and other people. Well, let's talk more about this mental stability. I think it's something that most of us yearn for and would like. How do we work with the breath in the midst of our life to have greater mental stability? Well, the, the first thing I would um, mention that I'm aware of is lengthening one's inhale and holding it is actually a very, I have found from my own experience, a very effective way to calm my mind and, uh, you know, kind of bring myself a little bit closer to myself. You know, I can, you can't go anywhere. You can't be thinking about other things when you're taking a moment to pause and hold prana in your heart space or in your, or in your belly space. But then also to exhale and remain empty for just a short moment helps me in another way to manage my energy and change the way that I see myself in some very interesting way. It's, it's very internal, the practices that, he, that both of them are teaching and where you know, we're sort of weaving all the threads of spirituality via the breath into the fabric of every single day and starting to experience a little more of the, the sweetness and the, uh, let's say, abundance of a good feeling, of a, a, of a good interaction, of a, a, a kind moment shared between two people. Now, you mentioned that in your experience, yoga and meditation are not enough in and of themselves, and that these other areas of self-growth have been helpful to you. I'm curious, when it comes to integrating the experiences and insights that you get from yoga and meditation into the rest of your life, into being a mom, into all of your responsibilities, how does that integration work for you? What do you lean on? Well, if I may, I just want to correct one thing that you said, which is that I, for a long time I thought that yoga and meditation were not enough because the way that I had learned them, it was not enough. It was just movement or it was just sitting still and being quiet and you know, sort of watching the, the show of my mind, as it were. And upon studying in earnest with Rod and Pandaji, I now understand that, in fact, when it's taught properly, yoga and meditation is actually more than enough. Okay. When it came to pass that before really delving into his work, to their work, I found coaching. And at that time, I had, you know, and I found self-observation, the fourth way work. I had no way to look at myself other than what I was being presented in yoga class. And so when this fourth way work came along and when, you know, practices of self-observation came along and when coaching came along, it was more of a conscious design of my attitudes and my ways of being that I had never engaged before. So for me, that was crucial to integrate these, these understandings, let's say into my life was a, is still a moment to moment process. 
when it comes to my kid. I have to actually use my practices in the morning to nourish my softness through prayer. Because in the moment that he's sort of whatever, not listening, acting like he's 10 or 11 now almost, how how, how do I deal with this? I'm not going to blow up like I was taught. I'm not going to, you know, go and hide like I was also taught. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to remain soft and I'm going to remain firm at the same time and speak what needs to happen without a charge. And those are the moments where the practice is proven to be effective. Those are the moments where the practice has the power, the power to affect the, the quality of my life. Can you tell me more about this remaining soft and how you do that? How do you notice that you're not soft, first of all, and then what do you do? Well, I've just witnessed myself so many times. It was much worse when I was um, in the throes of addiction. But and I've witnessed myself so many times just going off the rails for no reason whatsoever. You know, really not commensurate with the matter at hand. And... If I am trying to raise a child who is resilient, who knows how to handle himself when things become challenging, I cannot then demonstrate for him this utter lack of inner dignity, as we said before, this volatility that is not serving anyone. And so remaining soft is actually its part of my uh, Dharma code that I've designed under the tutelage of Yoga Rupa. It's a willingness to stay one more moment without reactivity. It's a willingness to sit there, not weak, not weakly, not meekly either, but to hold my ground and yet to remain available to a shift in the fabric of this moment so that everything can get a little bit sweeter and softer. Do you attend to your body and breath in some way as part of softening? I do. It's easy to repeat my Dharma code when I've had my, you know, half hour to an hour in the morning to meditate and do my breath work. So in the mornings now I do a little bit of movement. And right now I'm really steeped in this practice of pranadharna, which is a way to focus the, the breath in the body to bring it to a certain area of the body, particularly Ajna chakra, the sixth chakra, the third eye, um, and actually keep a, a quality of softness in the midbrain, which when, you know, an hour or two later, when I'm presented with some very normal, natural parent-child communication, I actually have the presence of mind to be able to recall, I'm starting to actually build up these um, accumulations of moments in that spacious sort of sensitivity, let's say, to the light that's available in this moment. You know, when my kid is acting like himself and, you know, confronting me and resisting me for any reason, I'm able to look and listen and know this is not personal. This is a, this is a boundary check from a very normal and healthy 10-and-a-half-year-old who's looking for some more autonomy. Whereas I think in my life, when my parents were, had, a, had an 11-year-old, they were not 46. They were 34. They had no teacher. They had only some wisdom as to how to handle it 
and they handled it quite differently. And that's perfectly normal. And no blame is even being launched in any direction at all. I love them. They did such a fantastic job. But the truth is, if we have a practice, when the moment comes and the hard edge would normally be thrown up into the space, we can actually stay quite soft and yet hold our ground. And that's the value of the work that I get to do now. Mm -hmm. You know, when you were discussing your continuing yoga studies, you mentioned that there was an environment of studentship among the teachers. And there's a quote from you that I really like, and it's the best students make the finest teachers. And I wonder if you can talk about that in this idea of we're all always students in a sense is what I take from it. But I'm curious for you to unpack that a bit. Well, I think as a student, you know, think about for a second, if you're listening to this, think about when you go off and you, you designate a few days to study with your teacher and suddenly you are not doing dishes necessarily. You're not handling anything around your home. You're, you know, off somewhere else you are with your notebook and your pen and your open mind, and you're ready to learn, ready to take in what you think might be relevant for the coming months until you can meet again with your teacher. Now, as a person in that position, we're just going really to see if there's any wisdom about that will help us to understand ourselves, that will help us to see all the positivity, the negativity, the patterning, the, the, the potential that we have. And that understanding, whether it comes in the form of tantra or acupuncture or intuitive counseling, whatever, however it comes, that understanding is what sets us free. And when you have a teacher who is actually engaged in that, in those processes more than once a year, you have somebody who's available to the momentum and the energy of self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-observation, that I see is very powerful and valuable to me as a student, and I want to be around that. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Elena, in your new journal, workbook, art book, Practice You, you talk about how there can be an approach to practice that's a feminine approach to discipline mm -hmm. <laughs> versus what could be considered a masculine approach to this idea of practice or discipline. Can you talk right. some about that? What's a feminine approach to spiritual discipline? That page, I'm just turning to it right now. Um, it's one of my favorites, actually. How can discipline, and it's a question that I pose to the reader, how can discipline be a surrender to the feminine? How can discipline be a surrender to the feminine? And, you know, I think as, as a person in recovery, 
from anything, <laughs> whether you're recovering from, you know, codependency or, or an addiction of any kind, your job is to discipline yourself. Your job is to deal with everything in life with affection, with love and with kindness, yet holding and hosting a feeling of, of, of vigilance and diligence. That's not, it's not overbearing. So there's some balance that has to happen. And what is the highest form of the feminine? Highest form of the feminine holds the masculine clearly and yet is completely capable of affection and love and kindness and, and equanimity, which I see as very feminine qualities. So that, that kind of was the prompt for that. And I want, I want all of us to think about that in any moment, in any circumstance, in any context, how can discipline really be a surrender to the feminine and not this, you know, hard edge that we put ourselves through? Elena, can you describe more for me what that looks like in your actual practice life? I mean, if you're setting your alarm for an early hour, do you think, oh, this is still the feminine approach to discipline at work? Or how do you make sense of that in terms of this feminine approach? Well, I think the first thing I did, I mean, if, if, if we're talking about sort of a day-to-day -day conversation, just getting clean and sober, I now no longer need an alarm. <laughs> I'm finally on the, I'm on the cycles of the sun and the moon. So I wake up right around 5, in the summer, right around six in the winter, I do my practice. That to me is the greatest surrender to the feminine there ever is. Because if I weren't for my practice, I would still be this very masculine, angry force in my son's life. And he doesn't need me to be that. So that's like the, the sort of the first thing that came to mind. I'm sure there are more examples day to day, but that's the most glaring of the mm -hmm. examples that I can think of. Now, when you say you surrender to the feminine, what do you mean by that in terms of what's the surrender part? You know, for many years, I struggled to have a practice at all. And I would, in fact, do exactly as you said. I'll set an alarm. I'll get up. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Because I have to. Because I should. Because I must. When really the surrender part is, oh, my goodness, how would I ever not let myself be swept into the space of meditation each morning and give up the opportunity for this softness to be manifest in me. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Okay, there's a page from Practice You that mm -hmm. I'd love to read and then we can talk about. And it's about three quarters of the way through the journal. And you write, today I tell the truth. I write a little. Mm. I create one piece of art, no matter how small. I remember myself at least once. I grow my spine tall. I love myself inside and out a few moments at a time. I lean on the universe with my honesty. I ask for signs. I receive them gratefully. Mm. It's fun to hear you read that, Tammy. Thank you. And there's a beautiful picture of a tree. 
Yes. And when I saw the beautiful picture of the tree, I thought of a couple of lines from this entry. One, I grow my spine tall. Yes. And I wonder if you can talk about that. seems like that's part of practicing you for Elena Brower. It is. It's, um, you know, there are so many times where I felt so out of sorts and so fraudulent, particularly when I was, you know, not, not treating myself well and, and taking in all that substance and to wake up every day and do these things, you know, tell the truth and write a little and create a piece of art, even if it's small and remember myself and grow my spine tall. You know, these are things that I have to actually be diligent about and proud of. These are things that help me be, you know, a better mom and a better lover and a better, you know, employer and a better um, sister, better daughter. There's not much more to it than, you know, how, how can I just be standing up to this moment with, with dignity and with grace? Now, is there something you do physiologically, if you will, to grow your spine tall, whether it's in meditation and yoga or just throughout your life. I'm curious about that. Like you ever notice like, oh, I'm slumping in this moment. What do you do? Mm. I have another set of teachers. Um, yoga Rupa is, you know, I would consider him one of my several main teachers. There are two women who are named Naveen Mishan and Abby Galvin. And Naveen is the founder of a, let's call it a style, a tradition of yoga called Katona Yoga, which is really based on all of her studies that range from um, Ashtanga Yoga, Iyengar Yoga, to the Tao, to Chinese medicine, to Rudolf Steiner, to Goethe, to Spinoza. And her work is so much about geometry and Abby's one of her main students and has also started to, you know, really be a voice for this method. And the growing the spine tall actually has to start with placing your perineum. If you're sitting on the seat or if you're standing, orienting it so that it's facing the earth directly, which means in certain cases you have to actually move your sitting bones back and find where the center of your perineum is because normally if we're sitting in a chair, if you're sitting right now and listening, you're probably sitting on the back of your perineum. And if you roll forward and find the front of your perineum where your pubic bone is, that'll be too far. But if you go somewhere right in between the two and you place yourself right on your root, from there your spine immediately rises and unfolds, unfurls. That's what I mean when I, when I read that. That's what I think about. I, I grow my spine tall. As I make myself available physiologically. I do what I just described. And then I make myself available to the, the, the light that is surrounding me. And, yes, there's a lot of darkness. And, yes, there's a lot of grief and a lot of pain in this world for sure. I am here doing my part to contribute to the ways in which people who need it most are being served to serve my kid, whom I think is going to be another lighthouse, and to try and help whomever I can to do their great work of leading. Hmm. I love that. Put your perineum face down to the ground. That's very powerful. It's, it's very powerful work. And that in, in 
context and combination with the work of yoga rupa and a little sprinkle of kundalini um, has proven to be really effective and efficient for my body. I feel better at 46 than I did at 26. Mm. Now there's another line in this journal entry, if you will, this prose poem that I really like. I Mm. lean on the universe with my honesty. There is the image of the tree. It partially made me feel like you were leaning against the tree. I don't know if you meant that, but I lean on the universe with my honesty. Tell me what that means to you. I can't lean on her any other way. (laughs) I tried as a liar and it didn't work and didn't feel good. And I was a wreck. And so I lean on the universe with my honesty really means like if I'm going to ask for something or if I'm going to offer things, which is what leaning is about to me, I'm going to get closer to things. I'm going to do it with tell it with truth telling, you know, to the best of my ability. That's, that's, and that's new for me. You know, I spent years telling all these little white lies and, and not taking care of myself and then putting forth this picture that I was. And we've all been there. And for me to, to put this out there, I'm leaning on the universe with my honesty. Now, this is, this is so comforting to me. May it be of great comfort to someone who reads it. Um, I, I can't think of any other explanation other than I just want to be somebody who tells the truth and does my best. I've noticed another thread throughout your work, both in your previous book, Art of Attention, and in Practice You, which is that part of leaning on the universe with your honesty means being willing to apologize when it's needed and being willing to grant forgiveness and ask for forgiveness. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that relates to your honesty. Well, the one thing I've learned and read a million times over when it comes to raising a child is that if you can't be honest with a child when you make a mistake and just apologize and make it clear to the child that it's there's safety in an apology, there's safety in a forgiveness. If you can't teach a child that, then the child's going to grow up thinking that lying is perfectly cool and fine. And that if they get found out and they do something wrong, better to hold it in, you know, chin up and don't apologize. Don't admit weakness. I feel that apologizing to my kid when I'm overbearing or overwrought, um, overcompensating. It's actually has been really good for us. He trusts me implicitly. He knows that I'm here for him. And when he's feeling resistant in any way and I overreact, he knows that I'm going to come to him and say, I'm really sorry. The, the space between us is very safe. He also knows how to forgive me and he see me forgive him. And he himself, by my example, comes to me when he similarly is, you know, overreactive in any way. He comes to me and says, Mom, you know what? I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I did that. And would you forgive me? And I, of course, you know, this is the way of the world. This is, um, this is how we design our emotional landscape. This is how we, we create humans and, and send them out into the world 
with a feeling of being heard and seen and and expanding. Now, you're in New York City, and we can hear the alarm yeah. uh, behind you, the siren. Yeah. Uh, what I'm curious about as you're talking is you said, you know, being a liar didn't work. And one of the things I'm curious about is some people seem to be kind of bold truth tellers by nature, and other people come to it later in life. What created that transformation for you? Like you, obviously, previously, there was some sense yeah. of posing or something. You know, there was this moment that, I don't know why it just came to my mind, but there was this moment when it was right before I got sober and clean. I was in the hospital with my mother, and she, I wrote this down at some point right around that time, just a little tiny poem that was only a few lines. I think it was, every moment, I just want to get back to the same presence I had when my mom collapsed in my arms. That was a turning point for me. It was like, oh, my God, if, what, what if this is it? I'm holding this woman. Her eyes are rolling back in her head. I don't know if she's having a stroke, a heart attack, or what. What if this is it? And I've just been lying to myself and to so many people for so long. Sure enough, within two weeks, I think, was the uh, letter that I wrote to um, dismount, let's say, to disengage from Anasara Yoga when John Friend was found to anyway, have all that weird thing happened. And, um, I was able to sit and write this very, uh, lucid letter, articulate letter to remove myself from that whole process and body of work and move forward. And that was the beginning of me learning how to just be honest instead of being too proud to tell the truth and being afraid of what other people would think. Was there a certain risk involved for you at that moment? Would you be able to summarize what it was that you were risking when you did that? I imagine, you know, my reputation, I guess. I don't know. I mean, at the time I thought, I don't know what I would have done had my mother not been in the hospital, had she not collapsed in my arms the way that she did so dramatically. But I knew for sure that there was no more me posing to help somebody who who shouldn't be helped. I knew for sure there was no more lying to, to protect anyone else or myself. What I was risking was my standing in that community, my standing in the yoga world at large, I think. And, um, um, I think I was risking also my own, my own understanding of where I belonged in the world. You know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't know myself outside of that little body of work. So I was so, I was, it was a big change for me at that time. That was around 2012. And it actually took me a longer time. I quit for a little while around that time, everything while my mother was in the hospital. And then I fell back. But once I quit in 20, uh, was that 2013? That was it. Mm -hmm. You know, Elena, I think I'm, going down this direction of truth-telling and mm. taking risks and the courage to stand in our truth. I'm going down 
this road so far. Because, well, you know, Sounds True was called Sounds True. And right. <laughs> I place such a high value on truth-telling. And I want to help people who are maybe wishy-washy about it, but see the potential, but are maybe afraid. And I think you're an example of someone who has had the courage to come out as a strong truth-teller in the past few years. And I'm wondering how you can address that person who's maybe in that wishy-washy place to help them move forward. You know, there's the value of the practices that we do. and Whatever you're doing, whether you're reading, you're meditating, you're studying, you're practicing yoga, it, the value of all of these little practices is that it, it, they each allow us to gain and to gather insights into our own mind, our own patterns, like we said before, behaviors that aren't helpful. And these practices are also meant to elaborate and amplify the behaviors that do help us. So we begin to see that lying to ourselves or other people, pretending is an unhelpful pattern. And as we gain and gather insights into where we're not really helping ourselves, where we're actually hurting ourselves, we can start to design the ways in which we can help ourselves and bring ourselves to that sort of um, restful steadiness that we talked about earlier, that sweet stability of mind and heart and body. And I think that's the most important part. How, how, you know, even if you're afraid of telling the truth about something, okay, how can you use your practice, whatever it is, to see the patterns that you're, you're continuously exercising that aren't helpful and just start to do what is helpful. Start to work on what will be beneficial to you and to other people near you. If you do that, that's the beginning of telling yourself the truth. And maybe someday you'll tell other people, but to start with, just bring your focus to your own self-awareness, your own healing and nurturing your own instrument, and let's see what happens from there. Now, you have one more line in this prose poem in Practice You that I want to underscore. You write, I love myself inside and out a few moments mm. at a time. And Elena, you're part of an upcoming online summit from Sounds True that's called the Self-Acceptance Summit. Yeah. And as part of that summit, you talk about self-care as an altruistic act. Right. And I thought that was such an important idea. I mean, so often we think of self-care as kind of something for us that we need to do. Tell me how you understand it as an altruistic act. Well, you know, there's it, as a parent, it's particularly highlighted because if I don't take care of myself, if I don't do the little things that I do to help myself be this steady beacon for my family, I'm no use, <laughs> straight up. I'm just no use. I'm, I'm temperamental, I'm all the things that we talked about earlier. And when I do take care of myself, though, feels like I'm doing something that's not just generous for myself, but it's altruistic for my family. And that feels really important to me. It feels like that, the, the word momentum again comes to mind. It feels like that's important momentum to be 
offering to my family. I'm taking care of myself and look how I am when I do this versus I'm not taking care of myself. <laughs> look how I am when I do that. I'm not happy. I'm not sane. I'm not effective. I'm not efficient. I'm not kind, I'm not soft. So just the, the, I think the act of taking care of oneself is actually the most important generosity that we can express not just to ourselves. It's really very selfless and it helps everybody who loves us, everybody near us. Mm -hmm. Now you also ask in practice you, you ask this question as an inquiry, where is the confluence of self-care and service in your life? Mm. I thought that was a very creative inquiry. Tell me what's behind that question for you. I think it's also similar, uh, it's, and but it goes. It sort of radiates out from the family to your friends, to the folks you serve in your work, your students, your teachers. When you're taking care of yourself, you're also able to. You know, we know this. You're also able to serve really beautifully and well and creatively and and nourish others. Uh, if in the absence of self care, you really can't. And the confluence for me happens where my good, my great work, my best work is able to come forth when I'm caring about myself the most, when I get my six, seven hours of sleep, when I, you know, keep my appointments to go to acupuncture, when I, you know, make sure that I, I am donating ample funds every month to the funds, to the causes that I care about. Um, that's, I think, all acts of self-care that actually serve now, to end our conversation, Elena, as part of Practice You, you offer a lot of different guided meditations that people can do and then write about their experience. And I wonder if you could just take us into one short meditation that seems appropriate for our conversation. I usually do this. Um, I just opened the galleys to... I said, okay, whatever chapter I open to, that's the one that I'm going to do. And I open to the green chapter, the love chapter. So take a moment to just sit quietly and arrange yourself so that your, indeed your perineum is facing the floor. And you can close your eyes if you wish and let your hands rest on your thighs. You can bring your palms up if you like so your heart is a little more available. And you can bring the tips of your ring fingers to touch your thumbs And let your spine rise tall. And then breathe right into the center of your heart, which is where all that love is held. And let your breathing rise and fall very naturally. And let that sensation of love lift and be amplified in all directions. And as you breathe, I'm going to read to you a few, just three gentle contemplations that you can consider as you listen to the sound of my voice and continue to follow the cadence and the sound of your breathing. And throughout your listening, just hold a sweet light in your heart space. When have you felt truly loved and cared for, and cared for, whether by yourself or by another? 
And the first picture that you arrive at in your mind, let's say, just let it unfold a little bit. When have you felt truly loved and cared for, whether by yourself or by another? And now that you have a sense of where that is and when that was and who that is, in your body, where does that feeling of love live? If you wish, you can even put your hand there. And take a few breaths there. And then as a result of that feeling and that space, what thoughts arise from the sensation of that love? Finally, how and with whom could you be more available to receive love? And equally, how and with whom could you be more available to give love? Those answers come pretty quickly. And you can put a little smile on your face. And then very gently release your hand if it's on your body in that space. And take a nice deep breath in as you open your eyes once again. Nice. And then exhale. And through through each of the contemplations, Tammy, I... I basically wanted to bring us together into a space where we were both completely safe and breathing and nothing too complex, but also really thinking about these very useful, pithy um, considerations. You know, where is this located in my body? Or how could I be a little bit better at this? Or where have I really experienced this fully? And what can I gain from, um, you know, recalling it? re-experiencing it. And Elena, in conclusion, what's your vision for Practice You, for people all over the world picking up this journal workbook and how they'll be interacting with it? What do you see in your mind's eye? This is actually the fun part um, for me. I really think that this can be useful for ages from eight, seven or eight, all the way to 88, 98, 99. I think that this is a useful resource for university classes, poetry classes, self-observation work. I feel that this is great for um, writing classes then we can get into the obvious, more obvious yoga teacher trainings. I think these are great prompts for people to start to really look into themselves in different ways. And it's all, you know, so much is here together in one place. Um, I did organize it so that all different populations would find it helpful. And already at the Book Expo, when I was there a few weeks back, I had two different school district um, 
administrators come to me and say, I'm going to order this for my public school district. And I thought that is an absolute manifestation. That was my dream. Mm. Um, so f- from kids, you know, all the way to kids in college, all the way to adults, uh, a lot of moms and daughters were picking this up and falling in love with it. So I think it's going to go far and wide, wider than I, even I can imagine right now. I've been speaking with Elena Brower, and she's created a new book called Practice You, a Journal. It's a field notebook for your unfolding journey. With Sounds True, she's also created the audio training series, The Return Home, Essential Meditation Training for a Vital Centered Life. And with co-author Erica Jago, she created the underground bestseller, a book called Art of Attention, a yoga practice workbook for movement as meditation. Elena, thank you so much for being such a creative human and such a truth teller. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Tammy. It's a real honor. Thank you. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.